From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The economic ravages of the pandemic are glaring when you visit a food pantry. This woman, Julie, says her hours were cut at work. She sells insurance to businesses, and they're just not buying these days, so she's in line for food. It means a lot. It means that my kids have dinner and lunch, and, you know, we're homeschooling now, and it's it's a real hardship for us. This COVID has really um, done a number on our family. The picture from a Denver food pantry and a look at hunger statewide. Then a heart-rending work of art. It depicts an indigenous mother grieving beside an empty cradle. The sculpture memorializes the Sand Creek Massacre, and it's one step closer to being placed in front of the state capitol. I'll speak with the artist, who's a descendant of survivors. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In a Denver parking lot the other day, traffic cones marked off a drive through lane. Cars paused long enough for workers to load in free groceries. Rachel Wewell of Denver was there. I'm getting food and pet food because I just lost my job. The supplies Wewell got at the Jewish Family Service Food Pantry will feed her, another adult, and a child in her household along with the pet. It's just really hard. It's, yeah, it's not a position I ever thought I'd be in. And she says this was not her first visit. Um, we've been coming for the past few weeks because we knew that I was losing my job. So yesterday was my last day. Joblessness is rampant because of the pandemic, and people are leaning heavily on food pantries, just as new restrictions tighten the vice on businesses and therefore workers as a result. Kathy Underhill manages food distribution for the State Department of Human Services. Kathy, welcome back to the program. It's so good to talk with you, Ryan. And Shelley Hines oversees the food pantry and other programs at Jewish Family Service in Denver. Hello, Shelley. Good morning, Ryan. And Shelley, are those the kinds of stories you hear a lot from clients these days? It sure is. I um, was nodding when I heard those stories because that's what I hear very, very often. Are these folks who have perhaps not relied on a food pantry before? Yes, that's what we started hearing, especially at the very beginning, where um, stories from people from all over the city as the um, pandemic started and store shelves emptied and anxiety kind of shot through the roof. And so people started trying to figure out what they were going to do. This was not a function, or was it partly a function of the mad dash for groceries uh, or people's economic circumstances? Unpack that for us. Yes, I think at the very beginning, it was the anxiety as people wondered what was going to happen, where they were going to get food. But it settled into, um, as people lost their jobs, it settled into more of um, a routine. Um, Unfortunately, people did not necessarily want to be there, but numbers, just huge numbers of people lost their jobs. 
And food is, you know, of course, one thing you can't skip on. Um, I know people weren't paying their rent either, but we do have to eat. And so we saw uh, just a huge increase from usually about 40 a day in our shopping model pantry pre-COVID to more like 160 per day coming in. When you say shopping model, in other words, you can roam the shelves and choose what you'd like as opposed to being delivered a bag of groceries. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, Before COVID, we had a shopping model where people got to um, just take a shopping cart and pick out the foods that their families wanted. And now with a drive-through model for everyone's safety, uh, we are pre-packing boxes and then um, all the people stay in their cars and volunteers load boxes into the cars. So a lot less choice, but people are just extremely grateful to have food and just know that they aren't going to uh, go hungry that night. With the numbers that you laid out there, you saw a tripling or more of need. Kathy, you work with programs like this statewide. Reflect a little on what you're hearing. You know, what we're hearing um, statewide is exactly what Shelley is seeing on the local level. Um, overall, about 18% of food pantry clients have never visited a pantry before COVID hit. Wow. And that's that's a staggering number compared to normal. That must be such a psychological adjustment, you know, for for folks who have been self-sustaining to start to rely on outside help. Do you, do you hear that from people, Kathy? Absolutely. And, and I think the other piece is that, you know, according to the survey that we've done in conjunction with the food pantry grant program from the legislature, about 48% of those clients have had a serious illness or a death in their family. Uh, 31% have lost a job or had their hours cut and 21% have lost their housing. So people are really being devastated by this. So some of them uh, have been ill themselves. I suppose those numbers don't reflect exactly how many have been struck with COVID-19, but they, they must be some of them. Absolutely. I, I would assume that it's a, a big number, um, you know, which makes sense because the folks that are, many of the folks that are coming in or folks that are essential workers, right? They're working at a grocery store, they're working hourly jobs. Generally, I think that bears out that the, you know, kind of the lower income you are, I would assume you would be at a higher risk because you would be exposed exponentially more than those of us that are fortunate enough to work from home. Of course, if you are sick, you're told to quarantine. For some people, that means that they're not able to go to work. There may not be the safety net at work to take care of them while they're out, and that only increases the need, Kathy. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Shelley, can you say uh, just a bit more about the demographics, the types of folks that you're seeing come through? Single people, families, older, younger? What trends do you notice? Well, definitely all of the above. I think the the people that talk a lot to us are people that haven't ever been in this situation before, um, have worked you know, their whole lives and were furloughed. So not everyone lost jobs, but many, many people were furloughed. Uh, we're seeing a lot of refugee and immigrant families, a lot of vulnerable working families with children. About 40% of the total numbers that we're seeing are children. And so lots and lots of families in our community that are uh, really food insecure at this point. Are these folks who are eligible, perhaps newly eligible, Kathy, for what we have traditionally called food stops? 
Yeah. So uh, some of them may be, I think that, you know, as you know, Ryan, from all of your um, interviews, the bar for getting food stamps is very, very low. I mean, you have to be at or below a hundred percent of the federal poverty line. Um, and so while we've seen applications for SNAP or food stamps go up, I would assume it's going to continue to trend up as people lose unemployment and other benefits that they have now. I am curious about how your food stocks are. In other words, if there's such increased demand, that means you've got to get this food from somewhere. Shelley, how are you filling the pantry at Jewish Family Service? Well, lots of generous people for sure. Uh, we were spending about 2000 a month uh, pre-COVID, and now we are spending about 40000 every month to just ensure that everyone that comes through our line has food for that week. Uh, let, let me just pause the you there. Th- those, been... are, those are stunning mm-hmm. numbers. You were spending yes. 2000 a week. You are now spending 40000 a week to procure food. Can I, I'm going to say per month. Per month. 2000 a month up to 40,000 40, a month a now. Month. Yeah, yes. pardon me. But I'm uh, sorry. No, no, no. I think I think I introduced the error, but what, but that's an incredible increase. Yes, absolutely. And so we've had very generous uh, foundations and the grants that Kathy oversees. We have incredible individuals donating food to us and cash. And Food Bank of the Rockies has done a really excellent job of increasing their supply. So when we're purchasing food from Food Bank at the Rock of the Rockies at a lower rate than we could get anywhere else, that's really helped a lot. But it's a massive undertaking to feed um, so many people. I think before COVID, we served about a thousand a month, and now it's over six thousand a month. You mentioned Food Bank of the Rockies, which you can think of as almost a a central distribution point that uh, channels food to pantries all over the state. Kathy Underhill, from a statewide perspective, can you speak to supplies of, you know, you also want it to be high quality food. You want it to be nutritious. Absolutely. And uh, one of the programs that I administer for the state is called TFAP, or the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is government commodities, so using American agriculture. In a normal year, so think 2018, um, as a state, we would have received about $10 million of food entitlement. For 2020, we're on track for $35 million, so three and a half times. Um, but it's still a challenge, as you can hear from Shelley. It's still, you know, there's still more need. My concern is that uh, part of the boost in food that we've been receiving has come through the CARES Act and the Families First uh, Coronavirus Relief Act. And of course, those end on December 30th. Um, So until Congress passes another relief package, if they do, uh, I'm not sure that our supplies will continue to meet the demand. Okay, so this is another dimension of COVID relief or the lack of it. Shelley, could you describe what's in a typical food box or bag that you might pick up from Jewish Family Service, as we heard Rachel Wewell doing in Denver the other day? Yeah, so they start with a box of shelf-stable food that has lots of canned vegetables and fruit and rice and beans and peanut butter and those kinds of staples. And then they also get a lot of fresh produce. 
some from the commodities program that Kathy's talking about, mm -hmm. and also from the stores that we pick up from. Uh, so we pick up from um, stores like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Sprouts, and people get a good selection of food there. We also have some commodities, um, some protein, but we also purchase uh, protein. So everyone gets a selection of um, like beef, fish, chicken, pork. Um, we had lamb recently and everyone was excited about that. So we try to ensure everyone's got some eggs and dairy and protein and then breads and all the fruits and vegetables. So a lot of really good fruit um, and fresh things as well. Do you have a relationship with restaurants? I mean, I know that they have been on such a roller coaster trying to plan for their own supplies. Uh, it, it, is there food to be tapped there? Well, we don't waste used to be able to deliver a lot of that. That That's much more difficult right now. And restaurants are a little bit more challenging for food pantries. Uh, we don't um, hand out meals that are already cooked and things like that. Yeah. Ours is really for food pantries, the things from the grocery stores that have, um, that maybe we aren't going to purchase as a consumer, but they are still very good products that can come out, but a little harder for us to use restaurant foods. Do you imagine, Shelly, anything special for Thanksgiving this week? Well, we are doing a gigantic Thanksgiving distribution. Um, so the box uh, tomorrow will be for uh, really more Thanksgiving kind of foods like pumpkin pie mix um, and pie crusts and potatoes and onions and carrots and, of course, a turkey, um, stuffing, all those kind of goodies for Thanksgiving. Kathy Underhill, if someone's listening and thinks, gosh, I really want to be a part of the solution here, how can I help um, statewide, what would you suggest they do? Oh, and I hope people do. Um, so I would suggest that they um, connect with their local food pantry or food bank, um, the organization, and they can find if they don't, if they aren't familiar with one, they can reach out to 211 through United Way or through the Hunger Free Hotline, which is Hunger Free Colorado's um, network, and they can be directed to a local pantry. And then they can call or email that pantry and ask what is needed. And I, I can't stress that enough. Um, call and find out what they need before you show up with stuff uh -huh. um, because they they have big gaps in the food availability. So you don't want to show up with 10 turkeys if they just got turkeys in, but they're missing another ingredient. Um, so call first. And I think the other piece is as we're having more people quarantining and isolating, especially those with disabilities, older adults, um, those that are more vulnerable, folks that want to volunteer to do home delivery of food boxes to folks, that oh. is a huge, huge need. Because and it's all not over that, the state. Yeah, it's not that everyone can go to a central distribution place. They, they may not have the, the means or they may be worried about their health in that respect. Absolutely. Uh, we have less than a minute. I just wonder, Kathy, you know, there's lots of talk of a vaccine. We now have heard this morning of a Third vaccine that's quite promising. It sounds to me like this need is not going to go away like that when a vaccine is available. There will be a long tail to this, don't you think? I, I do think, unfortunately. Um, I don't foresee us running out of food, um, although I think it's going to be a really challenging winter, probably the most challenging winter that we've ever had related to hunger in Colorado. Um, but uh, I don't think we're going to run out of food. I think we might end up with fewer choices. Um, of what is stocked in food pantries. Hmm. 
but I feel very certain that we'll have enough for everyone to be fed. Kathy Underhill is Food Distribution Program Manager for the Colorado Department of Human Services. We also heard from Shelley Hines of Jewish Family Service in Denver. The Sand Creek Massacre took place 156 years ago this month, a horrific chapter in Colorado history. More than 200 Arapaho and Cheyenne people were murdered in an ambush by U.S. soldiers. For years, tribal leaders have envisioned a statue memorializing the massacre outside the state capitol, but they've been met with resistance. Until now, late last week, after hearing from tribal representatives, the Capitol Building Advisory Committee voted to replace this Civil War soldier that had been on the West Steps with a statue acknowledging the attack. Fred Mosqueda of the Oklahoma Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes addressed the committee. You know, as we was growing up, we were told, don't talk about it. Leave them alone. Let them sleep. You know, that they've already been through enough, you know, they would tell us stuff like this, but we need some kind of monument so that they can go and in their silence can see something has come that that honors them. The artist tapped to create the sculpture is Harvey Pratt, also a descendant of Sand Creek survivors, and he's on the line with us from Guthrie, Oklahoma. Harvey, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much. You had already created a small prototype. I know that it's evolving, as art often does, but uh, what does it depict? I'm sorry, say that again? What does your prototype statue depict? Describe it for us. It's of a young woman. A young woman that's uh, on her knees, and uh, she has a left arm thrust up into the air, and she's holding an empty cradle board. And uh, it it really is about the uh, the women that uh, that suffered there, and uh, when uh, Cheyenne women or men uh, mourned, they cut their hair, mm. and uh, in the old days they used to either cut a finger off, or and then they would cut their legs or their arms, uh, and that's what this uh, statue depicts: uh, this woman holding an empty cradle board implying that she has lost her child and she has cut her little finger off at the second joint on her left hand and she's cut her hair, cut her braids off. Did you design this to be arresting? Did you design this to stop people in their tracks? Uh, because I'll say that when I saw the piece, that's that's what it did for me. It, it took my breath away. Well... I, I wanted it to to portray uh, that uh, this woman was uh, suffering and she's in mourning, and you can you can take it either as a survivor or a victim. Mm. You know, I leave that up to the to the person that's looking at it. But I wanted I wanted to show that uh, the suffering that she's going through, having having lost her child and possibly her husband or her father or her grandfather and grandmother, and uh, and. A long time ago, I was told that uh, as people were fleeing, uh, those that were left behind were telling them, remember us, don't forget us, remember us. And so I, uh, I, Cheyenne Rappel people always always remember Sand Creek. And I think that uh, uh, I wanted people to see her uh, 
asking for uh, help. Right, pleading the person, pleading with them to remember her, not to forget her. How did this idea of a grieving, grieving mother come to you? You know, I'm, uh, a lot of my a lot of my artwork is comes through a, a, a concept of of uh, something that happened or or someone that was that lived and. Uh, I've always heard about uh, Sand Creek uh, as a little boy. I've always heard that uh, my family, I was raised by people that were born in the 1870s and 1880s. And so they always, they always had a, a lot of old stories and they talked about uh, Sand Creek. And uh, so they, uh, this woman is barefoot and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, the victims uh, got up and ran barefoot. And I was always told, you keep your shoes right here by the bed, so you might have to get up and run. And uh, so I've, I've always, uh, I have that, do that now. You know, I keep my shoes right by the bed. You keep your shoes by the bed still. This was something you were told as a boy, just in case you have to flee. Yes. What do you know, you're, you're a Southern Cheyenne, what do you know about what happened to your, I believe it's great-grandparents? Yes, yeah, so my uh, my great grandparents were survivors of Sand Creek. It was Julia Bent. Julia was a uh, was the daughter of of William Bent from Bent's Fort, mm. and and my uh, great grandfather was Edmund Edmund Guerrier G U E R R I E R, and he was a half French and half Cheyenne, and as was uh, Julia was uh, English and and uh, Cheyenne. And they eventually moved to Oklahoma and uh, got some and had their lands there in uh, in a little town called Gary. And Gary was named after uh, my great grandfather, Edmund Garrier. You know, we heard earlier in some of the testimony before this Capitol Building Advisor, uh, Advisory Committee uh, that any number of indigenous people connected to the massacre grew up hearing, leave them alone, leave them be, don't unsettle the, their spirits, their memory. What do you, what do you make of, of being told that? Did you hear that as a kid as well? I've heard a lot of stories about that, I, you know, that people would go up there to that area and they would hear, they would hear uh, the spirits and uh, I, I've, uh, I've always thought about going, but I never have because that was a painful time, and I didn't want to hear those things, have those things etched into my, into my brain and into my system. So I haven't been up there, but I've, I've uh, having a family that was there and uh, survivors and hearing different stories, and uh, it's, a, it's an emotional place for a lot of people. Uh, Harvey, I just want to note that this statue might replace the monument of the Civil War soldier, which was toppled this past summer during demonstrations, carted away by the city. It's now at History Colorado Center for a while. How do you feel about all that? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm opposed to, to people taking, uh, taking those matters into their own hands and, dis- and the destruction of art. As an artist, I that those things are, to me, are pieces of art and what they, what they imply, uh, if, if people, there's better ways, to, in my opinion, to do that than, than physically tear and destruct things. Uh, I mean, let's take it to court and do it 
do it that way and have it done without having someone uh, taking something down and t- destroying it or because they don't agree with you. Hmm. I just want to note that in your other career, uh, you were a lawman, a forensic artist doing soft tissue reconstruction and drawing suspect sketches for the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation. Uh, you've worked on thousands of cases in that arena, including the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, but I also want to note that you were commissioned by the Smithsonian to do the National Native American Veterans Memorial, which was dedicated just a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C. This is a steel ring above a stone drum. I understand that you served in the Vietnam War. What was the dedication like? Well, you know, the Smithsonian was planning on having a a huge celebration, but with the COVID-19, we didn't want... uh, 30 to 40,000 veterans, native veterans coming to Washington and then maybe contracting uh, and taking it back to their to their reservations in their areas and infecting a bunch of more people. So we're we're going to postpone that for a while and and do it when uh, when it's safe, when they have a vaccine. And uh, so that's kind of the plan. But they we did uh, finish it. Ninety nine percent finished uh, uh, by the, the 12th of this month. And. Uh, so I was up there, my wife and I, Gina, were up there, and uh, we were uh, sitting in on the finalization of some of the, you know, they, we, I included the elements in there, water and fire and the air and the, and the earth and, mm. and the directions and prayer cloths and sacred colors. And so I put a lot of little subtle things in there that, that this design was primarily for Native veterans, but we want all veterans to come and experience a, a a peace and uh, healing and calming and and so and the, everything is rings because uh, the native people are are really a, a circle type people and and you know they we have teepees that are round and hogans and kivas and dance grounds and and then we we pay attention to the directions and and so uh, all those things that we ask and then have a path that leads to the memorial. And we call it the path of life, and it it kind of swings in and out of the trees and comes to the memorial, and it allows people to walk that way and, and prepare themselves when they get there mm-hmm. to uh, pray for their their veterans and pray for their and and it's a timeless to me it's a timeless uh, uh, memorial. It doesn't depict a specific time in in uh, in our lives, but it it depicts a uh, it allows our past our present and our future. And, and as people will, will approach it, uh, they'll realize that, uh, it's timeless. There's no beginning and no end. And, and it's, uh, it covers all, all nations, all, you know, it's 570 some different tribes and, and, uh, that we had to incorporate that. It was a blind competition. No one knew who you were and, and you submitted it and they narrowed it down to 120 and then they narrowed it down to five. Wow. And then they notified me that I had won. And, uh, it, and it, uh, it captures so much symbolism, and it has to represent, as you say, so many different people, so many different tribes. And uh, now there's the idea here of creating this statue commemorating the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, while the final design is yet to be approved, it'll sit in front of the state capitol. Harvey, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's Harvey Pratt, sculptor, lawman 
Southern Cheyenne Peace Chief, and Vietnam veteran. Masks are one of the simplest, most effective tools there is to slow the spread of coronavirus. But for the thousands of people in Colorado's jails, mask rules vary widely from county to county. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry has been looking into these disparate policies and joins us to share what she's found. Allison, how much variety did you find among different jails' mask policies? Um, a lot. You know, I felt like every sheriff I called had something different to say. Some quarantine people for 14 days when they get there. Then they let them into the jail population without masks. Some require masks everywhere except for housing units, which can number up to 40 or 50 people. Um, some, like Weld County, require masks all of the time. And that's thanks to a court order after the sheriff was sued in May. Well, why don't we focus for now on some of the biggest jails? Like, what's Denver doing? Well, Denver gives masks to inmates but doesn't require them to wear them. Um, in Adams County, they are given COVID tests when they get to the jail. And if they're negative, they don't have to wear the masks inside the housing units. Um, and in El Paso County, which has the single largest jail in the state, inmates were, given, were just given cloth masks earlier this month and are now supposed to wear them at all times inside. But that was only after a massive outbreak that infected hundreds of inmates and staff. And I want to point out that earlier in the pandemic, it was many of these same sheriffs who were kind of, I mean, outright activists in trying to reduce jail populations so that the conditions inside weren't so crowded. So the lack of masks um, and the lack of rules around the masks is a little head-scratching or, or inconsistent with that earlier effort. Right, which they seem so passionate about. Uh, back to El Paso County for a moment. You mentioned that they had a huge outbreak there recently. What's the situation now in terms of cases? Well, it sounds like it's, it's, it's getting better. The numbers are lower um, than it was in early November, but it still isn't amazing. I talked to Kendra Mack. Um, her husband, Ian Murray, is in jail pending criminal charges, and he got COVID. Um, she's not sure from where. He was bunked with something like 80 people, but she says she's worried about him. It's got me, his mom, all of us concerned. Like, until a person is proven guilty, like, I don't see how they could sit there and treat him like he's guilty. It's not fair to any of these inmates at all, period. She points out that he has not been found guilty yet, and this is a pretty harsh reality when he's still considered innocent in the eyes of the law. I mean, many people in jail have not been adjudicated. Correct. Jails are controlled by the counties, but the state... Has some say in this or not? Well, you know, jails are controlled by sheriffs. The state does have control. I mean, the executive order applies to everywhere. But I looked at it, and there's kind of a loophole, it seems, for lack of a better word. Because according to the executive order, there's an exception for, quote, large congregate living settings, but only for individuals who regularly sleep in the same room. That's considered a, quote, household. Oh. But in a jail, that can be dozens and dozens of people. So that's a little unclear, right? They have an exemption for, you know, housing units or, or households. But if it's 80 people, it seems like that could stand to be clarified a little. And right. even if you exempted the housing unit piece, inmates should be wearing masks everywhere else inside, in hallways, moving back and forth, and definitely coming in and out of court, where there have been outbreaks among public defenders. 
Is there any effort to change how jails are handling COVID overall? I mean, you mentioned a lawsuit against Weld County. Is that the only one? Well, um, no, there have been two lawsuits, two big lawsuits, successful ones. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the ACLU of Colorado has sued the Weld County Sheriff for not prioritizing medically vulnerable inmates inside his facility. The ACLU also sued the State Department of Corrections for a similar thing on state prisons, which, you know, we're talking about jails and masks. We're not talking about prisons. Right. And last week, the two sides, the Department of Corrections and the ACLU, entered into a consent decree, which required, among other things, that the state provide inmates with fresh masks weekly and that they're required to wear them. So it's pretty consistent, I think, in the prisons. It's these jails that have varying policies. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry on the varied mask policies in Colorado's jails. Still to come, how you can make this a chilly Thanksgiving. C-H-I-L-E. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The holidays will look a little different this year, but to keep your spirits bright, we are doing things differently in CPR's daily newsletter, The Lookout. I'm Francie Swidler from CPR News, and for Thanksgiving, we're featuring favorite recipes from Colorado Public Radio staff and their families, from classic cocktails to delicious desserts, surprising sides, and excellent entrees. Find them all in The Lookout this week, along with a big picture of the day's news in Little Bites. Sign up to get The Lookout free at CPR.org lookout. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A bittersweet story now. Sweet because it's a reminder of a time before the pandemic. Bitter because it also marks the end of something. Last year at this time, I visited Zolo Grill in Boulder to learn how to spice up Thanksgiving by using chilies in traditional dishes. Well, Zolo just announced it's closing its doors for good on Wednesday after almost 30 years. The owners say the decision was unavoidable given the pandemic. So today, we'll hearken back to happier times and listen back to our visits, because despite everything, it is still possible to spice up your turkey day. You guys have perfect timing. I'm just pulling our turkey out of the oven. It's just about there. We traveled to Zolo Grill in Boulder, specializing in southwestern cuisine, and met chef Kyle Mendenhall, who knows his chilies and found ways to incorporate them into every course, including dessert. There's even a chili cocktail. But we start with the bird. So this is an ancho chili marinated turkey breast. Ancho chilies and turkey are a really nice combination. They go well, really, together. The chili is dried, and it's one of the few chilies that is very raisiny in its flavor. Raisiny? Yeah, so it's not very hot, but it has deep, sort of darker, caramelized undertones in the chili. And so that combined with the, the turkey is a beautiful combination. So is this a rub that you did? It is a rub, but it's like a wet rub. We take the chilies and, and they're steeped and they're mixed with a few other ingredients. Uh, we do like a little black garlic, which has a really nice, also very fermented, sweet, caramelized undertone. Blend it together and then we basically massage that around the turkey breast. Is this something you would have at your Thanksgiving table? Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get more into it, but chilies are so versatile. I mean, they're so easy to add to so many different things. And it really doesn't take like an extraordinarily, you know, massive culinary mind to do that. Where do you get ancho chilies? I mean, definitely like any Mexican markets. But for us, I mean, we have a a couple purveyors that provide them. Should we give it a taste? 
Can, yeah. Do we have to wait to sit down? Can we do it right here in the kitchen? You're, you're the boss. You're the guest. <laughs> you're the guest today. We can do that now. <laughs> I'm going to give this a quick whiff before you cut in. Please. Oh, it has the sweetest aroma, and you're right. It's like raisins. Very sweet, raisiny, those caramelized undertones. So one thing, I mean, while you're here, I might as well give you a couple other secrets, right? One thing I like, especially when you're dealing with turkey, is to let it rest a little bit. Because you can see, I mean, you won't be able to hear it, but you can see the steam coming off right now. And it's nice to have it rest because those juices are all moving around right now in the breast. And if we let it rest for a second, they're going to stay inside and not leak out onto our cutting board or your plate or whatever. So... I remember ages ago a doctor telling me never to eat the skin because really? it's bad for you. No. But it's the no. most delicious part. No. The skin is the best part. You know, turkey skin can most certainly be a little tougher than chicken skin. But that said, I mean, especially with this application where we're taking this marinade and we're kind of massaging it all around the bird, that's where a lot of the flavor is. Yeah. You know, some of it certainly penetrates into the meat itself. Um, and like... For our marinade recipe, it's like 24 hours in advance, so it really has time to seep in. We're rejecting that doctor today. <laughs> All right. Oh, you're right that without the skin, you would lose all of that flavor, that lovely, crisp burnt. And I say burnt in the best way. I hope you know it's, that. It's a good burnt. There is such a thing as a good burnt. Now, this is a moist piece of turkey. That is not always true of turkey, and it's a chief complaint. Exactly. What's your tip? So my tip is, and what I always do every year, and I think, I don't think any of my family members would complain, is I like to, number one, brining a turkey. It's a whole other world, but that is a step that will help ensure your success in, in having a moist turkey. So a salt water solution. Exactly. A brine, Letting yep. the turkey have a spa day. Salt, water, aromatics, yep. So that's one thing, but not always necessary. In this case, our rub that we put on it yesterday kind of acts as a brine, so to speak. It's just not a wet brine, right? It's this marinade and it seeps in, right? And you have sugars in the marinade and you have salt and it draws out some of the moisture and it also starts to penetrate the meat. And but that's this, really- This was the importance of waiting a day for this. You, you do have to plan ahead, like all good things, right? But you know, when it comes time to actually doing your meal, Thanksgiving or otherwise, then it limits the number of steps you have to do in the moment. Day safe. Exactly. I will tell you though that my other very important tips are, I always do high heat to start for like the first 45 minutes or so and let the skin get crispy, let it kind of seal itself a bit. And then I will take foil and fold it as such, like you saw on our turkey earlier, that covers the breast because the white meat's gonna dry out first. No question about that. There's just a little bit more fat in the darker meat, a little bit more moisture. And so I take that foil and I place it over the breast to protect it. And then you go low and slow in the oven. Why don't we leave the chaos of the kitchen and see how else you have integrated chilies into the Thanksgiving table? You bet. I'm ready. First, though, a stop at the bar, where Brady Marinangeli of Longmont is mixing a chili-infused cocktail. By the way, recipes for everything we mentioned today are at CPR.org. I've made the smoking Hot Beets with Jim Bolt Mezcal, beet juice, cranberry syrup, lemon juice, and uh, chili agave. 
beet juice. Beet that juice. sounds entirely too healthy for a cocktail. <laughs> entirely too much like borscht for a cocktail. It's delicious. It's earthy, but it's kind of sweet and it's delicious. I carry the drink served up carefully to a table where Chef Kyle is waiting. He thinks chili gets a bum rap, and we toast to changing that. Here's the chilies, right? Oh, that's got... That beet cocktail has a hot finish. Oh, smoky. Smoky. You know, the, the beet is not offensive. It actually balances really well. I think uh, the poor beet's been mistreated so often that, you know, when you treat it in the right way, it has many great applications. In front of us, you have gathered other Thanksgiving Day possibilities integrating chilies. Why don't you review what we have here? Most certainly. So this is, you know, Brussels sprouts, very common side dish for Thanksgiving. And uh, we actually just put these on our menu. And so these are Brussels sprouts that have been sauteed, caramelized a little bit. And then we add what we call rajas. Rajas is, is a term for strips. And it's typically always bell pepper with red onion, olive oil, a little bit of garlic, and they're simply sauteed but it's a really great way to add some vibrancy, some color. Bell peppers in particular have a nice sweetness, but they also have a little bit of acidity too. So it plays really well with the Brussels sprout. And that's a simple thing as just sauteing some peppers and adding them to what you would normally do with Brussels sprouts for Thanksgiving. And I have in front of me things I want to eat all of, which are some sort of muffin. So this old style muffin is, it's an homage to kind of a sort of a classic American, uh, like Native American almost, mm. um, recipe and also a corn pone. Yeah, <gasps> they happen to be gluten-free. It's made with blue cornmeal. Um, we put our special sort of chili spice in it, which we call Zolo's voodoo spice. Okay. It's kind of like, uh, almost like you would think of like a blackening seasoning, but it's a special blend that we have made for us. So that's mm. in there, there's corn. It's adding a peppery flavor almost. Yeah, yeah you can definitely taste. I mean, there's paprika in there. There's a couple different kinds of dried chilies, a little bit of cayenne. So there's a little bit of heat. And whole corn. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, we oftentimes don't realize all the different applications that we're actually using peppers in, chilies in, you know, a blackening seasoning. People sometimes just think of it as just blackening seasoning, but it's actually, I mean, the the primary base of that is peppers. Um, Right. So when I order something blackened, I'm actually ordering something chilied. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Do you think that maybe I should offer you one of these muffins? Wouldn't that be the nice thing to do? <laughs> that would be to kind, share. That would be kind of you. But Especially then, you know, around Thanksgiving. Then I have to stop talking as much. <laughs> um, I want to get true. back to this idea. In front of these Brussels sprouts, the turkey. We'll talk about the dessert in a little bit. That chilies are misunderstood. What did you mean by that? My thought is, is that people oftentimes, they're afraid they're going to be too hot, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to be too bold. They're going to be too strong. They're going to overpower things. You're going to eat something and it's going to be so hot that you can't taste anything else. And that's actually not the case. I mean, there are many different levels, right? The Schofield units are what we technically use to measure how much capsaicin is in chilies. That's what makes them hot. This is the Richter scale of chilies. Exactly. Right. And there is a very broad range. Give us the Three best chilies if I'm afraid of heat. Oh, if you're afraid of heat, I mean, bell peppers are very much the most approachable. Um, I like things like the Pueblo chili or Hatch Green chili. Those are some of my favorites. I mean, a lot of the dried chilies that we use don't really have a whole lot of heat to them. Like a cascabal has a nice smokiness to it, but it does not. it's not going to come across as really spicy. Kyle, why don't we try these Brussels sprouts? We talked about them earlier. Absolutely. I was so distracted by those delicious 
blue corn muffins. Mmm. <laughs> Smokiness once again. And just the right kind of burnt. You do burnt well. I think they're tasty, for sure. It occurs um, to me you don't have to go all out with chili and everything at Thanksgiving. No. Try one side. Maybe even cook half the Brussels sprouts with and half without. Absolutely. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We've come to Zolo Grill in Boulder to add a little zest to Thanksgiving, a little chili to some of the traditional dishes on the table. Turkey, Brussels sprouts, muffins, and soon enough, dessert. But I've got to ask you the question. You know that New Mexico and Colorado right now are in a pitched battle over whose chilies are better. I am aware. We know this. New Mexico produces far more chili than Colorado by many magnitudes. Do you care to weigh in on this debate, which even governors have weighed in on? Absolutely. Um, you better be real careful now with this answer. I'll, I'll be careful. I mean, the reality is uh, something we say in this industry all the time is, is taste trumps everything. Okay. And for me, the Pueblo chili is superior over the Hatch Green Chili, without a doubt. You've made Southern Colorado mighty happy. What makes you say that? What is it about its taste? Well, I think it, for me, it has a lot to do with the fact that they are a thicker pepper, a thicker walled pepper, right? We say there's more flesh. Mm. And it's because of that, it, it holds more moisture, holds more flavor, and, and the heat is also a factor. You have not been paid by the state of Colorado. No. By Pueblo <laughs> County. No, I mean, I'm a Coloradoan. I, I love exploring the food of Colorado and what we do in this state, and I think it's very underrepresented. And the Hatch Green chilies are great. I'm not saying that I don't eat them, that we don't use them or anything like that, but, you know, if I had to choose between the two, it, it's a Pueblo. It's a Pueblo. All right. Uh, that was the icing on the cake. And speaking of, you have dessert in front of us. Why don't we wrap up with this? Yeah, the Costco Bell chocolate tart. The Costco Bell chocolate tart. Mm -hmm. Costco Bell obviously referring to the chili in question. Yeah, and actually this is one of them right here that I'm showing you. Oh, it looks like you. a big Bing cherry. It is. They're like a, like a cherry bomb pepper almost. Um, but they're and you're dry. rattling it. It's yeah. dry. I see. I didn't know you were musical. <laughs> oh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but the Costco Bell is a really... I mean, it has a it's sort of a natural smokiness to it. It's a mild pepper, so it's a good one to sort of introduce into things so that it's not going to overpower anything. And in this case, again, another great application of using a dry chili because what we do to make this chocolate tart is we steep the milk and cream with the Costco Ball chilies in it. Mm. So it sort of infuses that flavor. And then once that cream is hot, it's like you would start to make a ganache or something like that. You use the hot cream and melt the chocolate into it. You know, you're not going to necessarily take a big bite of a dry chili, right? It's just that the fact that it has been infused into that process. And the chocolate in this tart looks as smooth as I've ever seen chocolate look. I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> I'll decide whether to share afterwards. What do you think? <laughs> it's okay. I, we, we've got plenty more. Wow, the chili is subtle. It's subtle. It's not kicking me in the taste buds. Which is a good thing. And then we have... It's a finish almost. It is. It's a little bit on the back end of your tongue yes. after you've had it sit. I mean, chilies and chocolate is a... If there was a good sweet application, this is that it. is a marriage that has worked well for many years. 
But what we like to do to kind of up that level of, of chili, if you want, is we have some candied Fresno chilies on top. And Fresnos are, are like a red jalapeno. So they do have a little bit of heat to them, less so after they've been cooked and candied. But it's great because you get all of the intense flavor of a chili, but you don't have that heat. You don't have um, that capsaicin coming through. Wow. I would have never thought to combine sugar and a chili like that, but it's a lovely balance. This has been delightful. I want to eat everything. Thank you for your time. Happy Thanksgiving. My pleasure. We've been talking and tasting chili-spiked Thanksgiving dishes at Zolo Grill in Boulder with Chef Kyle Mendenhall. That was from last November. Zolo Grill closes permanently on Wednesday, but we've posted those timeless new recipes at CPR.org. That's our show for today, with special thanks to Hart Van Denberg and the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Schalzenet. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News. <laughs>